everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Healthy Christian Project, where we bridge our faith and our fitness and health together into one. On today's episode, I am joined by John Pasquet. So John is actually a computer programmer out in Missouri, and he actually wrote a book about the Bible, which is amazing. He's worked with Campus Crusade back in 2001, and he's also gone to Ukraine as a ministry there. And now he works at the University of Missouri with international students spreading his faith. So on today's episode, we are going to be talking about Jesus, but more specifically, we're going to be focusing on the faith side of things, and we're going to be talking about how Jesus appears in the Old Testament, not just the New. We know he's all over the New Testament, All of the New Testament speaks about him and points to him, but sometimes we miss the illusions and miss the prophecies even, and certain passages and how they speak about Christ. So, John, my question, what do you think? Is Jesus actually prevalent in the Old Testament? Well, I think, um, well, first of all, I'd say uh, thanks for having me, but, uh, you know, there was a time where I thought the Old Testament was just the ancient accounts of strange people in faraway places it had no relevance to me whatsoever. I remember in college complaining to my Bible study leader, like, why do we even have the Old Testament? Right. But then I began to see, uh, God began to, and I, and I think he prayed for me because that week I began to see, wow, Jesus is all over. And just as I, as I've uh, continued to read, yeah, Jesus is complete. The, the whole story is about Jesus from beginning to end. Um, Jesus is in Genesis 1. He's in Genesis 2. He's in Genesis 3. He's in Genesis 4. I mean, he's everywhere. It's all about him. It's his story. Right, right. So with that being said, do you think it's important for us as Christians to to study the Old Testament? Because I know a lot of us like to neglect the Old Testament. That, that's old. It's, it's inferred in its name. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We focus on Jesus. We focus on the New Testament. Well, if we focus on Jesus, we would we would need to to read the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to understand that, you know, today I understand that the New Testament is not a standalone book. It's the the final chapter. It's the culmination of one story. And uh, I actually had the uh, had a concussion in college one time, and actually lost my memory and we were watching a movie and, and I kind of came to, no one really knew I had a concussion until the mm-hmm. last little bit. And I ended up watching the last 10 minutes of a movie and it was exciting, but I had no clue what was going on. That's so funny. And I, and I think the same thing is true about the new Testament. And there's a lot of interesting things and there's a lot of great stories, but you don't understand the deeper meaning. You don't understand how everything connects. You don't understand how the fulfillment, the culmination, the beauty of everything coming together at that last crescendo if you don't have the rest of the song. And and so, yeah, I think the, if you want to know Jesus, in, in fact, I had someone tell me one time, if you don't know the God of Genesis, you don't know God. Mm-hmm. And I was I was offended at that point. Like, well, I've, I've been raised in a Christian home. I I know God but I've come to understand that he was right. And as you see God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from beginning to end, I mean, this is one story that has its has all the connections in the Old Testament, the foreshadowing, the anticipation, why we even need a Savior is all in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, I think of Matthew 4.4, 4, when uh, 
Jesus is being tempted. He, he when he faces temptation, he does it by quoting scripture, and right. the only scripture available to him was the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures. Now you can say that everything he said was the Word of God, and that's true. <laughs> but he chose to use the Old Testament, and and in uh, Matthew four four, he actually says, "Man does not live on bread alone." But by every, every word, word of the mouth of God. And so I think that's it's like, well, if we if we look at the world and we say, well, mankind is only a physical being. Well, then mankind would only live on bread alone because the physical uh, food would satisfy with physical needs. Right. But it seems like Jesus is saying you are not merely physical beings. You are a spiritual being. And just as the body needs good physical food. You might, you might be doing great physically, but dying of hunger spiritually. spiritually. Mm-hmm. And, and the spiritual food, he says, is every word of, that comes from the mouth of God. Well, that certainly inter- entails the Old Testament. Right. And he also, in the New Testament, shares, for example, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not just a hunger and thirst for physical food. Or that he is the living water. Whoever comes to him will never thirst again. Again, another allusion to what your body needs physically but what you also need spiritually, correct? Indeed, absolutely. Yeah, it's and it's interesting too. I think we have to to be. Um, well, Luke two fifty two says, "And Jesus grew in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God and men." And so Jesus grew physically, but he also grew in stature and in favor with God and man. So spiritually as well. And so if he grew both physically and spiritually and emotionally and relationally, then then that's that's something we should do as well. He's the pattern. Right. So reading from Luke 24, verses, verse 27, this is after Jesus was risen. Jesus was walking along with some disciples and says to them, or he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And I'm always fascinated, fascinated by that passage, because that means not just is Jesus prevalent in the Old Testament prophecies, but it's in all the scriptures everywhere. He was able to make, I just want to be there for that conversation. How amazing would that conversation be Jesus making himself known throughout every single piece of scripture? Well, and that's perhaps why they didn't want to stop when they got to uh, <laughs> the place. Like, just keep going. Like, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's what it is. It's there's. It's the Old Testament is not a disconnected old tradition. And some of the things may sing that way initially, and they certainly do. But then we begin to see that hey, this was all building up to something. There's this incredible beauty where, uh, as someone once said to me, he said. John, the, the old is in the new, concealed. The new is in the old, revealed. Mm-hmm. And it rhymes, so it must be true. It must be true, <laughs> yeah. But, and so, yeah, as you begin to see, I mean, he walks through Moses. He, he probably mentioned Jonah, Ruth. Uh, and he just walks through and says, and I, th- I think the power of that, too, you know, even in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, you know, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's not saying, hey, that's just what the scriptures say. That's not what he means by according to the scriptures. I think what he's meaning is in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the prophecies, in accordance Mm -hmm. with the foreshadowing. 
this is no surprise. And I think the, um, and of course, even Apollos in Acts, um, the book of Acts, proved beyond, you know, convincingly that Jesus was the Christ by the scriptures. What scriptures were they? They were all the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so, yeah, we, we neglect the Old Testament as Christians to our own to our own loss. Right. So can you give us an example of of a passage that we would not normally see Jesus in, but that does point to Jesus? Well, one of my favorites is an obscure passage in Numbers chapter 21. And uh, this is during the Exodus. And the pattern has kind of been, uh, um, well, I think it's a lot like the Christian life. Um, God is saying, you can trust me. And so the children of Israel get a little hardship and they say, I know what God's doing here. He, he brought us out here to kill us because there are no graves in Egypt. Wouldn't we have been better off in Egypt? <laughs> and God's like, no, I didn't bring you out here to kill you. I bring, brought you to, I'm going to bring you to the promised land. And then, and then they don't have water. And they're like, oh, I know what God's doing. He, he wants to kill us. Egypt. Remember how much water we had in Egypt. <laughs> and so God is patient and he's uh, providing them every step of the way. And then, and then they start to, to charge him and attack his character again. And at this time, God begins to pour out his judgment, and he sends snakes among them. And they start biting people, and they start dying. And to the to people's credit, they're quick to, to repent. And they go to Moses, and they say, Moses, we were wrong. Ask the Lord to take away the snakes. And essentially, God says no. He says, the judgment will stand, but I will provide you a way of salvation in the midst of judgment. So here's the the way of salvation. You can imagine Moses saying, okay, what's the way of salvation? Fashion a snake. Okay. Put it up on a pole. Okay. And when everyone's bitten, they can look at it and live. You can imagine him just saying, what? (laughs) Tell them what? And it's like, well, that's a very strange thing to do. What, what, what is going on there? Well, you can imagine the scenario where, you know, people, someone gets bitten and they're like, oh, no, I'm going to die. I've been bitten. I have this venom in me and it's going to kill me. And someone said, no, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard? God has made a way for you to be healed. And this is what you have to do. Moses made a snake. He put it up on a pole. All you have to do is go look at it, and God will heal you. What? Well, what, what do you like? Well, but what would you do? What if you only believe that there were a five? There was a five percent chance that it would work. Well, there are no other options. So you would go and you would look, and then you would be healed. But everyone who went and looked was healed, and everyone who didn't look was not healed. It wasn't the strength of their faith. It wasn't the how noble of character they were. It wasn't how much they had sinned. It was, did they take the moment that, and to trust God? Because what was their problem? They didn't trust the character and the goodness of God. And so everyone who went was healed. And so it's like, okay, that's a really strange story, but what's the bigger picture? Well, everybody knows John 3.16. Right, for God so loved the world. Right. But John 3, 14 and 15 are, are absolutely extraordinary. 
John 3, 14 and 15 says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, Mm -hmm. so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life, for God so loved the world. Um, And so it's like, well, so what's the bigger story here? Well, we've been bitten by a snake, and that happened back in Genesis 3. And the venom in us is not a physical venom, it's a spiritual venom, the spiritual venom of sin. Right. We're dying. But as we go and approach the cross of Christ and look upon Jesus in faith, we are healed. And so that's what John 3.16 means. I don't think we can fully understand what's going on in just the John 3.16 unless we look at John 14 and 15 and then know the story in Numbers 21 because that's the context and it's just a, it's like, wow, that's a really, really powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in, and so that is the gospel. The gospel is in Numbers 21. That's mm-hmm. foreshadowed. One of the things that I really like about that, though, is if you're driving around town or, and you come behind an ambulance, what do you see on the ambulance? Yeah, that's, I, I was thinking about that, that snake. You see that exact you same thing, which is a symbol of healing. Yeah, so the universal symbol of healing, and you go to the Chinese uh, Medical Association, the the World Health Organization, everything, it's a a snake on a pole. That has become the universal symbol of physical healing. And the cross of Christ is the universal symbol of spiritual healing. Amen. Amen. So I remember we were having a little bit of a conversation as well beforehand, and you were mentioning this This is a little bit more of a clear picture of where we see Jesus, but in the sacrifice of Isaac. Uh, could you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, and there's actually a new movie out that actually touches on that a little oh, bit. Oh, really? Is, yeah, it's called uh, His Only Son, I think is what it's oh, called. I haven't heard of that one. Um, you know, he... Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting movie. But yeah, so basically the story is Abram has uh, been called of God. He's been blessed by God, but he didn't have a son. Finally, God provides the son. He's, a, he's learned to trust God fully, and he's heard God's voice throughout time, and then he hears God's voice again, but it's different this time. It says, Abram, Abraham. And he, Abraham says, here am I. And God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him on the mount that I will show you as a sacrifice. Can we just speak about how extraordinary of an of, of a request that is? Who would do well, that? Well, and, and you know, and Hebrews helps us out with that because, yeah, what does Abraham to do? Does God require human sacrifice? Is that the nature of God? And and we know now that no, it's not, because God did not have him go through with it. That's not the nature of God. But you have this odd thing, and the story goes where Abraham, in full faith, gets up the next morning, takes his son, and it specifically records that he puts the wood on Isaac. And Isaac is carrying the wood up the hill. And Isaac asks a question. He says, Father, you get a little old. Did you forget something? Here's the fire and here's the wood. Where is the lamb? And Abraham's response was, God will provide himself a lamb. As they go up that hill, the son who is carrying the wood is then bound to the wood he carried. Mm 
in the hand of the father, raises the knife to take his life. But Abraham didn't take his life that day. The, the hand, his hand was stayed by God as God calls out to him. And a substitute is offered, a right. ram. Now, God, now, Abraham had said God will provide himself a lamb, but he didn't that day. He provided himself a ram. But then day. later, he did provide a lamb. Later. And it took gonna... place the exact same way, right? As you, you, you painted a very poetic picture where this the same son who was holding the wood, now the wood is tied to him as Jesus carrying the cross. As the father came up just about to strike his son, so God was uh, God did strike his son. You painted a very poetic picture. Well, and it's 2,000 years later on perhaps the same hill. It's the same region. We don't know exactly where it is. We can't prove that, but perhaps the same hill. And you know God likes doing stuff like that, so... <laughs> yeah. God took his son, his only son, whom he loved, took him up the same hill. And again, John the Baptist says, so where, where was the Lamb of God? And John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming toward him, says, look, the Behold. Lamb of God. And so, so yeah, so, so Genesis 22 is a story of a man being willing to offer up his only son because of his love for God. But the entirety of the scriptures is God being willing to offer up his only son because of his love for you and me. Right. And there's a, the Bible always says about drinking the cup of wrath. And maybe in the Old Testament, the cup of wrath was just like God's anger. You never really think about it as Jesus drinking God's anger as all of God's anger being fully poured out on him. I don't think any any one of us would even endure a drop of that cup. And yet all of it was taken out on Jesus. Right. You know, I think someone said too, the cross shows us both the love of God and the and justice, justice of, God. of God. Not just one or the other. The justice of God, because this is how... Because I, I think we make little, well, I'll say this. I make little of my own sin, that my sin is not that bad. But in the in the perspective, and, and I think when I look at other people in my, you know, pride, I can say, well, I'm, my sin isn't really as bad as theirs. But the comparison is not to other sinners. The comparison is to the righteousness of, that God requires, which is absolute. And in that, my, my, my righteousness is as filthy rags. Right. Even my most righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Sure. So a lot of people today like to disregard the law of Moses. Sometimes it makes them uncomfortable reading specific laws or or it's, it just may not be relevant today. For example, the mixing of fabrics or stuff like that. How can How can we see Jesus in laws like that? Well, that's a good question because you have the, you know, the moral law and, and some people have distinguished between what the moral law is and the ceremonial law. Um, the ceremonial law was for a particular people at a, in a particular time period. Right. But that time period has come to a close. Um, and it's an interesting thing because God made them to be a peculiar people. Some of the things were, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine um, like, what was the, the real purpose in this? 
But some of the laws, of course, in the ceremonial laws were laws like the keeping of the Passover. Mm-hmm. Well, what did that have to do with being a holy people? But of course, the Passover is an incredible picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the whole sacrificial system. Like, why did lambs have to die? Not because just lambs, talking, many, many animals. Yeah, lots of animals, lambs and goats. And, and Sometimes bulls. reading the Old Testament, I'm like, how did they have so many animals back then? <laughs> Indeed. But, um, but I think, again, the whole sacrificial system, I mean, even you go back to Genesis 3.21, it predates the, the law of Moses, where uh, Adam and Eve are standing before God, guilty, knowing that, he said, death is the penalty for eating the forbidden fruit. And they felt guilty. And what's interesting, though, is God turns away his wrath, and he kills an animal. You can almost see Adam and Eve say, well, what did the animal do? We were the guilty ones. But it was the sacrifice on that day of the innocent that covered over the shame of their sin. You know, would one be the sacrifice, not of just the innocent, but of the righteous who would cover the guilt? And so, you know, I, I can't, I don't have an answer for all of the fabrics and all that stuff, but, um, but, I, but there are in the, the law pictures of Christ, even with the, uh, the tabernacle, all of the, the laws about the tabernacle, you have this thick curtain that would protect that, you know, because no one could look into the presence of God because we were sinful. And so this, this huge curtain kept people from even accidentally looking into the presence of God, because when unholy people look into the, or experience the presence of God, they will die. Right, and so we see all the details about this 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 curtain that you know one person once a year. So you had to be the right person, the right family, the right tribe, the right you know, and, and to to go behind this curtain once a year into the very presence of God. And of course, when Jesus was crucified, that curtain was torn. Mm-hmm. So, so like, what did all the what did the curtain mean? What was all the the details of this, what's the purpose of that? Well, now we see clearly, even though we don't see everything clearly, we see in that instance that that it's a beautiful picture of God now provides access to all through the death of Jesus Christ. Amen. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be a man. You don't have to be of the tribe of Levi. But Levi, you don't have to be of the family of, you know, whoever that family was. And even, even going down further in that it's open to everyone right so does that kind of make christianity like judaism 2.0 well you know i think um jewish people who who come to faith in jesus consider them fulfilled jews Mm -hmm. because i think what's interesting when you look at the old covenants um and i kind of in in the in the book and with ministry to people, I'll explain that it, it might be better to call it the old, the old testaments as in plural, right? Or the old covenants, because God made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant David. with David. He made a covenant with Israel as a nation. And then what's, what's really interesting is in Jeremiah 31, he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
-hmm. and then nothing else is mentioned about it. And so you're like, well, where's, yeah, where's where to this go? better covenant? And then Jesus, of course, lifts up, lifts up the cup and says, this is the new covenant. Of and my so, blood. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and so, of course, in the New Testament, believers in Jesus who are Gentiles are called spiritual Israel. That we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, not of his ethnicity, but of his faith. Right. That we are spiritual Israel. I think this this principle of Jesus being found in the Old Testament is so important to learn because a lot of us love neglecting the Old Testament. You know, I was listening to a to a podcast just yesterday. Um, Dr. John Newfeld, the podcast is Back to the Bible, and he was speaking how even the Ten Commandments, the most the most known commandments of our time, people don't know them anymore. And he interviewed a group of Bible college graduates to see like if they knew the Ten Commandments. Some of them said um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth were a commandment. Some of them thought that Jesus, uh, the the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, was a commandment. Like the fact that we don't even know the Old Testament, we don't even know the Ten Commandments anymore. Let alone how we can see Jesus throughout the Scriptures. How So my question is, how can Christians better understand the Old Testament, especially when it comes to Jesus? Well, yeah, I think um, no, no, it's interesting, too, on that. I, I have a friend who said, you ask people about the Ten, Ten Commandments, and they say, well, I don't, I don't really think those are important. And he said, okay, well, what would be your commandments that you would make up? And they come up with five of the ten pretty quickly, like all of the, all of the people he asked that question of. And so... It's the moral law written on our hearts, but right. uh, to your question, I think, um, I think it's it's a matter of that again. It's one story. The New Testament is not uh, a separate book. It doesn't stand on its own. It's the culmination of everything in the old. And there's countless scriptures that, I mean, you look at David too. I mean, you talk about him, the joy that he he longs for the very presence of God. Um, which is interesting. If, if you look around the religions of the world, I think Christianity is pretty unique in that, about the desire for his presence. The, the highest ideal of what eternity could be is not selfish. It's not an idealized earth. It's all about the presence of God. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I, I would say I understand the hesitancy to, to, to start through the Old Testament. Um, because it seems like it's so distant. Um, but I think when people have that guide, uh, a guide or, or start to be introduced to that, uh, then the Old Testament becomes just a fabulous book. I mean, I, I would say that in college, my freshman year, Genesis would be the last book that I would ever read. And now it's, it's one of my favorites. It's like Book of John, Genesis, uh, it's like, which one do you want? I'll take it. <laughs> You know, um, and so um, so I might have a little plug here. I do have a book oh. <laughs> uh, that if people are interested in a guide to walk you through to see Jesus on, you know, not in every page. It's not exhaustive like that. It's not 10,000 pages long. But to walk through the scriptures and begin to see how it all fits together. Um, 
Jesus is the shepherd's shepherd. You know, David was the shepherd king, which, well, Jesus is the shepherd king, you know? Right. Um, David's, David knew what it was to, to, uh, to uh, shepherd the flock of his father. He knew what it was to shepherd the people of Israel. And yet he says, well, who shepherds me? And so Psalm 23 is, well, the Lord is my shepherd. And of course, that just, you know, John 10. I mean, there's so many connections, it's hard to even narrow it down to just a few. But when you begin to see the interconnectedness, um, and I, I would just come back to, if you want to know God, if you want to know the God of the New Testament, you need to know the God of the Old Testament. Right. I want to I want to give an example, and I'd like you to break it down. Uh, I'm going to read Psalm 22. I want to know what did David go through, and how does this relate to to Jesus? Psalm 22 says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night. But I find no rest." Later, he says. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. And then later, he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and... My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So, you know, when did G when did David go through all these things? Well, yeah, that's a great question. We know that David fled from Saul and was pursued even by you know, Absalom. And, but that never happened to him. But I don't know. I guess if you're in Israel and the king writes a song, you sing it, you know? Um, <laughs> no, matter because, what, no matter what he says, you're singing that. Right, we're singing. He's the king. We like Psalm 23 a little better. That makes a little more sense. But Psalm 22, hey, king, the king wrote it. We're going to sing it. But, yeah, I mean, it had to – I mean, if you were David's friend, uh, you know, I don't know if Jonathan was alive when David wrote Psalm 22 or not. But I can imagine Jonathan saying, what are you talking about? When did this happen to you? Who divided your clothes? Who cast lots for your clothing? You can count all your bones. Like they pierced your hands and your feet. Show me them. Like, what are you talking about? Um, and, uh, you know, you could, you could almost say, well, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He probably felt like that at a few times. Like, are you, are you here? Do you see me? But yeah, it never happened. And I think the beautiful thing about that is, Again, I don't think the psalm ever made much sense at all. So <laughs> a thousand years later, on the hill, the same hill where Abraham offered up Isaac, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Right. Now, he wasn't asking a question. A lot of people say, well, did he, was he having a moment of uh, doubt there? No, he wasn't asking a question. He was quoting. He was quoting Psalm 22. And you can imagine the Apostle John standing there. And they're like, oh. Never... Yeah, like, oh, 
My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? A band of evil men surround me. They've divided my clothes among them. They've cast lots from my clothing. Perfect prophecy. They pierced my hands and my feet. They say, you know, uh, he saved others. He can't save himself. I mean, David is describing the scene at the cross in impeccable detail. And it was centuries before crucifixion was even invented as a right. method of, 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 uh, of execution. So when he's talking about they pierced my hands and my feet, it'd be like, why would anybody ever do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. But in first century Israel, it certainly made a lot of sense. It's like, that's how Romans crucified. That's how crucifixion is done. And so, yeah, I think it's this, John had to be standing there going, oh my goodness, this is what David was talking about. It was foreshadowed. It was there. And I, and I think this is the point of it too. It's we get to the New Testament and we see, you know, if we, I think in 29 AD or 28 AD, you would look at the Old Testament and say, what do all these prophecies mean? And, you know, you could get all the greatest minds in the world and they could come up with something and they would have been completely wrong. But after Jesus was risen from the dead, everything connects. Right. Everything makes sense. The, the offspring of the woman in Genesis 3, the, the sacrifice, the Passover, the bread from heaven, the water from the rock, the, the son of man lifted up, um, the kinsman redeemer and Ruth. I mean, everything connected. Everything made sense. Everything was fulfilled. And I think, yeah, before the, before the resurrection, nothing really connected. After the resurrection, everything connects. Amen. Another question for you. Do you think that there are any misconceptions maybe about how Jesus can be portrayed in the Old Testament? Well, of course, the, the standard thing is the God of the Old Testament is, is harsh and the mm. God of the New Testament is gracious. And, and you see such grace and such mercy uh, as God carries the Israelites through the desert. I mean, he hears their cry. He's patient with them. Um, so tender. I mean, well, even you see Hannah in um, in First Samuel, who's who's just broken. She's this she's the second wife of the man, um, and hasn't had any children, and and is just destitute. And she says, "Okay, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him to you." Mm -hmm. And you have this. This, you see the aching heart of, of this woman who uh, the, the other wife is, is, you know, chiding her and, and mocking her. And, and she's just, all she wants is a child. And she pours out her heart to God. And then you see the beautiful uh, fulfillment is that God does give her a son. And her joy had to be immense that God has answered my prayer. God is good but she had no idea how good he was because he wasn't done yet. Right. Because you read the end of the chapter and she had five or six other children. And it's like, you prayed for a son. And it's like, how about six children? Let me just overwhelm you and fill your, you with joy beyond measure. And that shows how gracious he truly is. Yeah. You know, 
did God need to do that? Was she a, a woman of great importance or anything like that? It's, you know, I, I think um, that's the same as Jesus in the New Testament. You know, I, I think of the um, the story of the leper who comes to him and says, and a leper, again, anytime anybody got near would say, unclean, unclean. And can you imagine living a life of never being touched? I mean, I remember when COVID hit and I, my parents and I had to meet up in a town halfway between, but we didn't touch each other. And it just mm -hmm. killed my mom. You could see in her face because that touch, that embrace was so, so important. So this, this leper has to say, unclean, unclean. And it says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus had healed people in a lot of different ways. He had spoken. He had sent them away. Um, he'd say, go sell, show yourself to the priest. But he didn't do that on this day. The scriptures specifically say Jesus reached out and touched him and said, I am willing to be clean. And it's like Jesus met his deep need, not just to heal him, but just to reach out to him and touch him. Now, I think it's an interesting coming out of COVID. COVID was, if, if anybody's infected, then no one can touch them. Right. They are isolated, <laughs> quarantined, don't even think about going near them. Because when the infected one touches an uninfected one, the infection would go from the infected to the uninfected. But not with Jesus. Right. When, with Jesus, it goes the other way. Which is so strange. You know, you think of that passage. Um, I, there was an Old Testament prophecy where God was like, if if a leper touches another person, what happens? Does the unclean become, un, does the clean become unclean or does the unclean become clean? Well, what about the high priests? Like, you know, and, and obviously the clean doesn't transfer, but the unclean does. Here, Jesus breaks that. Yeah, because Jesus was not merely a man. Right. There was no unrighteousness that could infect him. That had his touch, the cleanness flowed out from him and made, and, and again, that's a physical representation, but that's what happens spiritually too, as, right. as we experience the touch of Jesus, that he cleanses our lives. Right. Um, question. In your book, do you go, do you talk about in any way the strange, mysterious character of Melchizedek. I don't touch on that specifically. That would be a great addition. That was one of the hardest things about the book is what do you include and what do you exclude? Mm -hmm. It's like, man, that's it's really, really hard because you want people to actually, you know, read it in, in at least one lifetime and not keep going on and on and on. But no, the Melchizedek, I, I, that was not included. But uh, um yeah, it's a hard call. There's a lot of hard calls to make. Right. I don't know. And that is such a strange character. It's just a strange meeting in Genesis. I don't know. I'm always thinking about it. I'm like, wow, okay, his name means king. Like Melchizedek, it means a king of, uh, well, he was king of Salem, which at that time was Jerusalem. And, and Salem is where we get his Shalom, which means peace. So Jerusalem actually means the city of peace. Right. And yet it's the one city that 
because it was very seldom had peace. Right. And but there, was the, there was a passage where Jesus laments over Jerusalem, which is so sad. Right. So yeah. sad. But, but when the Prince of Peace reigns in Jerusalem, there will be peace. Amen. Where can we find your book? It's on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, um, pretty much any place uh, that sells. What's it called? It's called The Essence. It's a guided journey of discovery through the Bible. And that's really what it is. Uh, I take about 25 passages from the old, 25 from the new, and just show how it's Jesus, 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 Jesus. And it's part apologetic, too. It's written with the... Uh, with the believer in mind, but also the unbeliever who's never read the Bible before. Um, what's kind of interesting is when you talk to a PhD candidate or a postdoc who's reading the Bible for the first time, um, how do you introduce it to them? And one of the ways that I do this is like, well, so does the Bible have any relevance whatsoever to us today? I mean, we, we live in the age of science, the age of reason, the way right. the information I said, yeah, we, we understand that we live in a physical universe of time, space, and matter. Matter occupies a particular point in time at a particular, I'm sorry, a particular point in space at a particular time in history. So they're all interrelated there. So does the Bible have anything to say to us? I don't know. Let's read the first verse. In the beginning. In the beginning. Well, that's a measure of time. God created the heavens. Well, that's a measure of space. And the earth. Well, that's matter. It's like, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Time, space, and matter. Yeah, so maybe, maybe the Bible does have something to say to us. But not just about physical realities. Also spiritual realities. And you might have an astute physicist who says, well, what about energy? Well, that's let there be light. That's that's verse three. So it's all there. I mean, um, so, yeah, I think it's the, the book is part apologetic to answer questions like that is, hey, this is this is why we are convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Um, as John said in John 20, 30 and 31, um, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God so that by believing you may have life in his name. There's a life to be had and there's a life to be missed out on. And it's all through whether we believe in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Amen. I think that is the perfect phrase to close off on because truly Jesus is the Son of God. And I, my wife was telling me, um, like one day you no matter who you are, you will either accept him or reject him. There's no middle space where you're just, you know, you're, you pretend you're ignorant or you, you haven't made a decision. You're either going to accept him or reject him. One day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's why I'm, I'm so grateful that you've come on here and that your book is, is, your, in a way, your ministry, it, it speaks to people who haven't heard of Christ or haven't come to accept Christ. In our re in our, our age of postmodern um, logic and, and reason, 
but so many are reluctant to accept Christ because they think the Bible is just outdated. But here you are bringing relevance in our society to the Bible. And I think that's amazing. Well, it was a joy to write and it's a joy to share just to, and it was a joy just to spend all that time in the scriptures, you know, just seeing all the connections, all the beauty. And it is, it comes back to it. Jesus doesn't offer us death. He offers us life. Amen. And, you know, a long time ago, I realized that Satan and God offer exactly the same thing. They promise exactly the same thing. But one delivers alive. and one doesn't. Yeah. And right. so I think the deception is this world. It's like, so you, you seek fulfillment and meaning and purpose. Those are good things. But Satan cannot give you what he doesn't have. Mm. Only God has meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment to give you. And so, yeah, the book is, is just um, offered in hopes that it will encourage believers and then, then, uh, and then challenge unbelievers to experience the life that Jesus has to offer. And not just life, but abundant life. I'm personally super excited. I think I'm going to pick it up on Amazon quite soon and read it. I'm super excited. If anyone, sorry, it'll be in your house in seven days. Oh, wow. Look at that. I don't even have to pick it up on Amazon, but I'll give it a read. And of course, I'm so, so grateful that you were able to join us today. And do you think you have any closing words for anyone listening? Uh, Well, first, thanks so much. It's definitely an honor to to meet you and to, to, to talk to you. But yeah, I think, you know, um, I just encourage you to, that, you know, God is the source. God is the source of joy. He is the one that desires relationship with us. I think the fact that uh, God made us to know him doesn't just say something about us. It says something about him. Amen. God wants to be known. God wants to know us. God desires a relationship with us. And that's what we were made for. We were made to be in relationship with him. Well, I thank you again one more time for joining. And for those listening, join us next time.